appreciate these pretty flowers that Rita has supplied for us. Reminds us of the country in which we live that in spite of its many problems is yet the best place on earth to live and rear families with religious freedom yet ours to enjoy. Appreciate those of you visiting with us. We've got so many of ours that are out visiting somewhere else and we're thankful that you have come to visit with us. With our lesson this morning, we're going to begin a series of lessons on 1 Thessalonians 2. The theme of chapter 1 is what the gospel does. And Paul continues with a related theme in chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, the theme of which is the gospel preached. The gospel preached. In verse 1, Paul starts off saying that, Ye brethren know that our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. Why is that true? Because they obeyed the gospel. When we had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, we came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. Acts 17, 1 to 4. That was some gospel meeting. Three weeks of it. Our meetings today generally go Sunday through Friday. They used to go Sunday through Sunday. Then they went Sunday through Friday. Now Sunday through Wednesday. Many of our congregations have stopped holding gospel meetings because they cannot get their own members to attend. As I have traveled around the country in gospel meetings over the last 10 years in particular, there have been a number of instances where if I were, at, were to be asked back, I would not go. Because I went encouraged at the thought of preaching the gospel, left discouraged over the lack of interest in the gospel manifested by that congregation. I can remember two congregations numbering four to six hundred. One, this meeting started on Wednesday. About six hundred people made up that congregation. Congreg I mean, the meeting started on Friday. Friday through Sunday. Friday, there were about 12 people there. About 12 people. And then Sunday, the building was running over. That's the environment in which we find ourselves. And so some congregations, like numbers in our area here in Montgomery, have just stopped holding gospel meetings because they cannot get their own members to attend, and the people are more discouraged, the elders primarily, than encouraged. 
What a gospel meeting. Three weeks long, multitudes obeyed the gospel among those Greeks. And of the leading women in the city, there was a large number of them. No wonder Paul starts off this great chapter by saying, Brethren, you know that our entrance in unto you was not in vain. That word vain is a sad word. It denotes empty, futile, worthless, fruitless. Ezekiel 2, as well you know, or Ecclesiastes 2, for the sake of you visiting with us, I'm struggling mightily with my memory. I used to preach without notes, but now I've got notes before me and I can't even remember my notes. But anyway, that's Ezekiel 2. Solomon said, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine. When a man makes that statement about a quest of life of which he is fixing to engage, we know where he's going. And it's not going to be a good journey. I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly. Who wants to lay hold on folly? A fool of a man. And that's what he is right now. Wisest man saved Christ who ever lived, but he's not going to act like it for some time. For what purpose, Solomon, that I might see what it is that a man should do all the days of his life. That's a great thing. What should a man do all the days of his life? Not what he's about to do. Well, what can you expect about a man who starts off by saying, I'm going to commence this journey under the influence of wine, and I'm going to lay hold on folly. So we're not surprised to read the rest of the verses. It was a totally materialistic, fleshly-driven quest. He went after money. He went after leisure living. He had servants everywhere to take care of every need he had. He built up treasures that kings were noted for. God had already given him more than he would ever need, but he wasn't satisfied with that. And so he just added to it and added to it and added to it. Later he said, a man cannot be satisfied with money. He should know Ecclesiastes 5.10 because he tried it. He had 999 too many wives and concubines. He only needed one wife. But he wasn't satisfied with God's original arrangement. He wanted to live a life of abandonment. He abandoned God and held on to the flesh throughout the whole journey. He said in verse 10, I withheld not my heart from any joy. Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. Well, he had the money to be able to do that. You imagine being so wealthy that you can just have whatever you want. You don't have to ask for it. You just go buy it. And then he finally slowed down one day and stepped outside of his mind and body and took a look at it. Then I looked on all the things that I had labored to do. All the things I'd done under the sun. And behold, all, not some of it, all was vanity 
What does that word mean? Vain, worthless, fruitless, of no value. All of it, not some of it, not most of it, all of it was vanity and vexation of spirit. It vexed my soul every step of the way. He should have known better. And then he concluded by saying, and there was no prophet under the sun. Ecclesiastes 2.11. Saul, the first king of Israel, was not noted for his Israel, for his uh, wisdom. But every now and then he had a sober moment and a sober thought. And on one of those rare occasions, he confessed to David, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And that's what Solomon was doing. He played the fool. The wisest man, say Christ, that ever lived. And he played the fool. Well, he said, I want to lay hold on folly. And I'm going to convince my journey under the influence of uh, alcohol. What do you expect was going to happen? He just made a fool out of himself. And he erred exceedingly. All of it was in vain. Matthew 15, 7 to 9 Jesus said, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines and commandments of men. Every religious activity not based on truth is in vain. Think about that point. Every religious activity not based on divine truth, God's mind to our mind, divine revelation is worthless fruitless, profitless, and an act of perpetual vanity. Colossians 2 verse 23 speaks of will worship. Acts 17, 23 speaks of ignorant worship. Both will worship and ignorant worship constitute vain worship. Summed up in Matthew 15, 9, in vain they do worship me, teaching for commandments, the doctrines of men. And in John 4, verse 24, the only kind of worship God will accept. It's spirit and truth worship. The right act with the right attitude. The right action with the right motive. The right conduct with the right heart. God accepts only spirit and truth worship. In my, uh, John 18, 38, of all people, Pilate, raised one of life's most penetrating questions. What is truth? Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, he will show you things to come. John 14, 26. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them yet. But the Holy Spirit is going to come and take up where I left off and guide you into all truth. That's John 14, 26 and John 16, 12 and 13. And then Jesus said, and ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. When Pilate raised that question, what is truth? The chapter before that, Jesus answered that, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is true. 
John 16, 12 and 13, and John 14, 25 and 26 constitute the twofold office that the Holy Spirit had in relationship to the apostles. One, he was to reach back and remind them of everything Jesus said in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And thus, they would have a perfect memory of three and a half years of teaching from the Son of God Himself. But after this lesson is over, you're not going to remember some of the things that I said. I'm preaching it. And I won't be able to remember with my present mindset some of the things I said. We all need help in our memory. Even some of you young folks complain about your memory. That's not good. But you have a lot more to deal with than Cherry and I had to deal with when we were raising our children. Those first 15 years in Thompson, Georgia, they went by slow, but sure, but slow. Small town. And it was a wonderful process. Living in a place like Montgomery, Alabama, with all that you young parents have to do, no wonder that you're struggling with your memory. Well, the Holy Spirit, by miraculous power, gave those apostles a perfect memory of everything Jesus taught them for three and a half years. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then guided them into all additional truth. That's Acts to Revelation. And so when the Holy Spirit got through with those 12 men, they had the perfect revelation. And Jesus could say, and ye shall know the truth. That's the completed revelation of God. And the truth shall make you free. What is true about sin? That's a great question. Sin is our problem. In Romans 1 verse 16, Paul announced that gospel is God's only power to save. He knew he would never convince those people to obey the gospel until they realized they were sinners and in need of the gospel. And so the rest of chapter 1, he presses upon the Gentiles, that's your problem. In chapter 2, he starts off dealing with the Jews. All of that chapter and chapter 3 and most of it is for the purpose of proving a passage that we all know well. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then he sums that up in a few verses. The gospel scheme of salvation centering in Christ crucified in order to take care of man's basic problem, which is sin. What is the truth about salvation? That God is our only hope through Christ and the cross. That from eternity he planned the plan of salvation whereby man could be redeemed from his most basic problem that started in Genesis 3, 6. Reared his head in the garden of paradisial perfection and ruined everything. And from that moment to this moment till time's end, sin will be man's problem. And the preponderance of humanity will go to the fires of Gehenna where they will suffer all of their lives because they never, in the patriarchal age, in the mosaical age, connected themselves to God's promise to redeem the world through the seed of woman, Genesis 3.15, and the seed of Abraham, Genesis 12.3, that culminated in Christ crucified. And all of those from Acts 2 to the end of the ages 
who never obeyed the gospel or who obeyed it and did not remain faithful to it. That's the preponderance of humanity. That's the masses of the earth. In the days of Isaiah, there was a very small remnant, Isaiah 1-9. And that's always been true. That small remnant was so small that in the days of Noah, just eight people. It was so small that in the five cities of the plains, it was a family of four. And one of them barely made it out of the city and no further than that. And the other three went up into a mountain and behaved like animals. They were mightily contaminated because the head of that house set his tent toward Sodom. When you set your tent and your life in the direction of Sodom, sooner or later you're going to wind up there. And you may make it out by the good grace of God. Lot was so weak and so connected to the materialism of Solomon or of Sodom that he waited to the last moment. He just kept waiting until finally, in unusual, unique, rare mercy, one of God's angels grabbed that man physically to drag him out of that place. And his wife and two daughters with him. We pay the price for playing around in the Sodoms of the world. What's the truth about the church? There's just one. It's the exclusive church that Jesus said, I will build and did build. It's the product of the gospel preached and the gospel obeyed. That's what happened on Pentecost of Acts 2. And every time an individual obeys the pure, exclusive, unadulterated gospel of Christ, he's added to the church of Christ that belongs to Christ, cleansed by the blood of Christ, the exclusive church of Christ. We've been talking a good bit lately about the church of liberalism that's been established right in the midst of the church that Jesus said, I will build. It's all around us. In some of the bigger cities, most of the larger congregations in those cities constitute the church of liberalism. They no longer believe in the exclusive church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They could not articulate to you the exclusiveness of New Testament Christianity if their very proverbial life depended upon it. In the church of liberalism, you could not preach Acts chapter 2. They don't believe in Acts chapter 2 because it sets forth the exclusive church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The product of the exclusive gospel of Christ and the church of liberalism no, no longer believes in either. What a long way downhill we have gone. But there are churches like Panama Street yet among us. Many of them are in the rural areas of the country. And they believe right now what they've already always believed. They've not departed one iota from the mind of God set forth in the word of God, which is the Bible, God's mind to our mind. And they can say with all assurance and thanksgiving and gratitude to God, I was taught the gospel as a youth. I obeyed it as a youth. I'm now an old man and an old woman, and I still believe what I've always believed, the exclusive gospel that produces the exclusive church.
What is the truth about worship? We've just noted. Four different kinds. Vain, ignorant, will, but only God will accept truth and spirit worship. What is the truth about life? Solomon made a mess of his. We want to have the wisdom to live a life devoted to God and truth. What is the truth about eternity? It never ends. One of the saddest of all truths is that efforts put forth for God and truth are often in vain because they do not accomplish their desired end. Is that not a tragedy? They do not accomplish their desired end. 2 Peter 2.5 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He preached for over 100 years to the people who were destined for destruction. And as far as the record is concerned, not a single person obeyed the truth. Over 100 years of preaching, and it was all in vain. No great gospel meeting like Paul preached in Thessalonica, where multitudes obeyed the gospel. No great meeting like that, where people responded to escape what was coming their way. 1 Peter 3 and verse 20, in regard to those people that lived in that day, there's a beautiful phrase. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, God's long-suffering, patiently waiting in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, but only a few, eight, were saved. Sodom and Gomorrah, you think of all the years of grace, mercy, and forbearance that preceded, preceded their destruction. All of the centuries of opportunities they had. And they wasted every one of them. They were devoted to perverted, corrupt sexual activity. And just this past weekend, as we noted in our class in the back, Friday and Saturday. This country, all over this country, celebrated homosexual. I don't use the term gay. There's nothing gay about homosexuality. Nothing gay about it. They celebrated the perverted corruption of homosexual conduct. It was all over the news. Everywhere. People taking great pride in sexual perversion, the very act, though they were guilty of other things. Jude 7 says they went after strange flesh. That was the basic reason God destroyed them. So here is this country that was established by men who believed in God and believed in the deity of Christ and believed in the Bible as the word of God. And we have sunk to the level where now we are celebrating national homosexual pride week. Look at all the mighty works God did in Egypt. Exodus 9, 16, in this very cause have I raised thee up, Pharaoh, 
He not only raised him up on the throne of Egypt, but he stirred him up by the demands he made upon him. Raise thee up. For what purpose? For to show in thee my power and that my name, God's name, might be declared throughout all the earth. Those great signs constituted the proclamation of the gospel. It may be a strange way of looking at it, but that's what it was. God said, that's what I was doing. Declaring my name throughout all of the earth. Declaring the name of God, the character of God, the traits of God, the oneness of God, the exclusiveness of God. Salvation to be found only in God, not in those idols that Egypt was worshiping, Israel was worshiping, and all the world was worshiping. God says, you want to see the real God? Here's an expression of it. Ten of them. And he didn't stop there. It was one after another. He followed that first generation with, plague, with uh, miracle after miracle after miracle. Numbers 14, 11. How long will it be, God says? You can hear the frustration in his voice looking at it from a human perspective. How long will it be? Ere this people believe me for all of these signs that I have showed unto them. How long will they provoke me like this? All of those signs, all of those miracles didn't mean a thing to them. God was trying to get them to have a heart characterized by faith. But Hebrews 2 verse 19 says they couldn't enter in that good land of Canaan because they lacked faith. Of all the people of Canaan that knew about all of that, only one family was saved. Seven nations in Canaan. What, God, what was God trying to do with those plagues? Among other things, to get the people of Canaan, the seven nations in Canaan, to confess what Rahab confessed. A harlot. We have heard what your God did to those two kings of the Amorites, those people there in Egypt. We know all about that. For your God is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. If the verbial ten, the figurative ten, had been in Canaan, that God agreed to save Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam and Zeboah, and so on far, Save Zohar, of course, with lots pleading, but the other four. If that ten, figuratively speaking, could have been translated to that same type of a number that grabbed hold of God's goodness and grace and mercy of those seven nations in Canaan, and they would have confessed what Rahab confessed, God would have put off their destruction until the time passed by when again the cup of their iniquity, Genesis 15, 16, was again full. Only Rahab's family was saved after all that God had done. The preaching of the prophets, Ezekiel 3, verse 7, God says they're not going to listen to you, Ezekiel, because they're not going to listen to me. All of this preaching, all of these efforts, in vain, because they did not enjoy the desired end. The preaching and work of Christ, three and a half years old, 
symbolized in John 6, where thousands, 5,000 men, you had the women and the children, we're talking about 12, 15,000 people enjoyed a great meal with a handful of fish and bread. They came looking for Christ the next day. Not because they saw the miracles. That's what he told them. You're here because you got a free meal and you want another one. And then he got down to what they really needed. Not physical bread, but spiritual bread. The truth. Oh, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear this? John 6, verse 60. And so the culmination of all of that, and many of his disciples went back all but the twelve and walked no more with him. John 6, 66. What are you going to do? He said to those twelve. Lord, where, where else are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. The very fact that Christ was crucified bears witness to the fact that what he taught and did was in vain as far as the masses were concerned. Where lies the problem? Where it's always been. Was then, is now, always will be the hearts of men. 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 10 to 12 and with sets forth the fact that they were lost. Why are people lost? That, that passage answers that question. Why are people lost? Paul says they did not love the truth. Did not love the truth. And so with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. They all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And that's been man's problem from the very beginning. They refuse to love the truth. That's the problem with the church of liberalism. They no longer love the truth that some of them once loved and once followed. They rejected it now and they cleave to the idols of the world. Idols allow men to follow the flesh. And that's what the church of liberalism wants to do. They want to follow the flesh. Do what pleases them. They cease not from their own doing nor from their stubborn way. Judges 2 verse 19. Men are lost because they do not love the truth that God has set forth in the Bible. You're present. Never obeyed the gospel. We encourage you by faith. Repent of your sins. Confess Christ. Be baptized into Christ. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You've done that straight away or you just need the prayers of the church. That's what we're here for to help one another. We hope you'll come while we stand and say.
Appreciate that, link, uh, that lesson, Mr. Frank, very much. Just remember to be back at 5 o'clock for our training class, 5.30 for our memorization class, and then 6 o'clock for worship again. Let's turn to one last song before we're dismissed, number 558. 558. Will there be any stars? We'll sing the first verse of this song and then be dismissed in a prayer. I am thinking today of that beautiful land I shall reach when the sun goes down. When through wonderful grace by my Savior I stand, will there be any stars in my crown? Will there be any stars, any stars in my crown? When at evening the sun goes down, will I wake with the blessed in the mansion of rest? Will there be any stars in my crown?